The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Good to see you this morning. If you have your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Today we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 21. If you're going to use one of the Bibles that's in the seat back in front of you, it's on pages 7, the bottom of page 712 and the top of page 713. When I read verses like the ones that we are going to read today, I often realize that God has a completely different set of values than the values that I typically hold to. God has a completely different set of values that the culture um, tends to promote. And the thing that I have to remind myself of and the thing that I want to remind you of today is that whenever we see this clash of values in Scripture, whenever we see something that's being presented as God's values and there's a contrast to our values, I want to encourage you to remember that God's values are the correct one in that situation. It's an opportunity for us to come underneath the values of God, to place ourselves underneath God's values. It's a challenge for us to not elevate our values over the values of God and his kingdom and the way that his kingdom operates. Because the way that God's kingdom operates is reality. It's an ultimate reality. Last week, we talked about faithfulness from the first five verses of chapter four. And we talked about the way that faithfulness is revealed through a couple things, through three things. Faithfulness is demonstrated by humility. Faithfulness is demonstrated by being trustworthy, our own trustworthiness. And lastly, faithfulness is demonstrated when we, uh, by, the, by the confidence that we have that God alone is the judge of all people and the judge of all things. And what that last one means is, is, is we are typically poor judges of what's taking place because our values are so often in contrast and opposition to the values of God. What that means is my judgment is, is, is more likely than not to be wrong. And I know I'm, I'm being made in, into more of an image of God. I'm, I'm, my mind is being transformed because I'm not conforming to the world. But the reality is, and this is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7, there's still this battle going on within me. I want to do the right thing, and I don't. I don't want to do the wrong thing, but I do. So there's this war in each one of us as we are being transformed into the image of God as followers of Christ. And because of that marker of faithfulness, that's the standard by which Paul is saying that he is going to be judged. That's the standard that he is saying Apollos is going to be judged. That's the standard that he is saying the church at Corinth is going to be judged. As Christians, that's the standard that we are going to be judged on is our level of faithfulness. Paul is going to say some things as he closes out this fourth chapter. And here's the summary of it. Because God alone is judge, neither Christians nor the church are free to pick and choose who they prefer in ways that devalue one leader at the expense of others. I want you to notice 
that the issue isn't in the preference itself. We all have preferences. We all have things that we like. We all have people that we prefer over another. And the issue at the church in Corinth is they are using their preferences to devalue the people who are not their preferences. They are using their preferences to devalue the things that are not their preferences. That is the sinfulness in Corinth. And, and this devaluation of those who are not their preference reveals the depth of their sinfulness. The issue is not that Apollos is a more gifted speaker. As we read through Acts 18, we see that Apollos is a gifted speaker. That's not the problem. That's not the issue. The issue is that, that the church in Corinth is using these people He's using their names. He's using their giftedness. Paul, Apollos, or Peter. He's using them as weapons against one another. The church is is creating division against one another and creating division and inciting division against the leadership of the church. And ultimately what Paul is saying is it sets them against God. As if it's not bad enough for the church to be at odds with one another. As if it's not bad enough for the church to be at odds with the leadership that God has given it as a gift. The ultimate issue with the church in Corinth is they are setting themselves against God and his will. His existing, his current will for their lives. That's the real ultimate problem at the church in Corinth. Is you are fighting against God. And division and dissensions are crippling evils. And when, when a church engages in this, when a church participates in these divisions and dissensions, the church is at stake. The unity of the body is at stake. The presentation of the church as a people who have been transformed and who are being transformed is at stake. Because people are looking into that, they're peering into that space and there's no transformation. What they see is the same level of division and dissension that they experience at work or in their families or in their neighborhoods or in their country when it comes to the way we elect our officials. The church is called to be something else and ultimately that impacts and affects the way people view the reality of who God is. Because we have a group of people who are saying, yeah, we are, we are being transformed into, into the likeness of God. We're being transformed by the renewing of our minds. These are words that we're saying, but as, as people peer into the church and they peer into the life of the individual Christian and there's no evidence of that transformation, it is the action or the inaction or the inactivity that stands above what they say which is why Christians are often accused of being hypocrites because our words and our actions don't align. Everything we've been reading up to this point is, is going to culminate in these last verses of chapter 4. Paul is going to clearly communicate to them the depth of their sin and the result of their sin. And he's going to root this in scripture. Let's look. This is 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Don't worry, I'm going to speed up after we get through this. 
Dear brothers and sisters, I have used Apollos and myself to illustrate what I've been saying. If you pay attention to what I've quoted from the scriptures, you won't be proud of one of your leaders at the expense of the other. There's the issue. That's the problem. Clearly identified. If you pay attention to what I've quoted from the scriptures, you won't be proud of one of your leaders at the expense of another. That last part is the operative part of that sentence. And here's what Paul is saying. These issues are just the perfect example of your problem. Your brokenness and your sinfulness. That you are doing this reveals your sinfulness. You're more Corinthian than you are Christians. You're more living out the values of your culture than you are the values of your kingdom, the kingdom to which you profess to believe. I've been using scripture all along. In fact, Paul uses scripture um, five different times up to this point in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He's trying to confront them with reality. He's trying to confront them with their brokenness, with their sinfulness. And Paul is on to something here. He just uses scripture to do it. I'm going to read the actual Old Testament texts that Paul quotes. So if you were to flip back through, um, through 1 Corinthians, my Bible has, um, has those kind of italicized and, and placed in the middle of a column. Um, but the first scripture that he mentions is in 1 Corinthians chapter, or verse 19, 1 chapter, I'm all messed up. Let's start over. The first text scripture that Paul quotes is found in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 19. And the text that he is quoting is Isaiah 29, 14. And he says this. This is Isaiah 29, 14. Because of this, I will once again astound these hypocrites with amazing wonders. The wisdom of the wise will pass away and the intelligence of the intelligent will disappear. See, Paul is utilizing this Old Testament text because what he wants to do, as he says in chapter four, is to help them pay attention to what God wants them to do. And here's what Isaiah 29, 14 is saying. God's wisdom is not bound by eloquent speech. God's wisdom is not bound by eloquent speech. So stop depending on it. Stop thinking that if Apollos isn't the speaker of the day, you're not going to learn anything. Paul's wisdom is not, God's wisdom is not dependent on eloquent speech. The next text that Paul quotes is in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, and it is Isaiah 64, 4. It says this, For since the world began, no ear has heard, no eye has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him. Here's what Paul is using this text for. God's wisdom has been hard to understand from the very beginning, and it certainly isn't demonstrated by people who are living for themselves. Did you hear that last part? God's wisdom has been hard to understand from the very beginning, and it certainly isn't demonstrated by people who are living for themselves. Have you ever been in one of those conversations with someone who doesn't, like, who is not a professing Christian, and they start 
like quoting the Bible to you in the most maddening way possible. Like they literally have no idea what they're talking about. I've had conversations with Christians like that. See, what Paul is doing is he is saying to the church in Corinth that if you are just living for yourself, you are not understanding what the Bible actually says. You may be saying the right words, but the problem is your understanding. The problem is your practice of them. The next text that Paul quotes is in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16, and this is Isaiah 40, 14. And it says this, Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? Does he need instruction about what is good? Did someone teach him what is right or show them the path of injustice? Here's what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth. God doesn't need your input. God doesn't need you to instruct him on what is right. And I think one of the, one of the biggest issues in our culture and in our society today as Christians, as, as we observe what's taking place in culture, as we observe what's taking place in society, is we have decided, we have decided to believe that we know more than God. We believe that we are more moral than God. Because if I were God, I would do this. If I were God, I certainly wouldn't do that. And the question that God is asking in this text, has the Lord ever needed your advice? The very beginning I said was, as we read through scripture as Christians, as we read through scripture and we come to something that, that is absolutely 100% challenging and we maybe disagree with, that's not an opportunity for us to for us to pull up an imaginary chair across the table and sit down with a cup of coffee and, and talk to God as though his morals are wrong. Well, God, let me tell you what, let me tell you what morality looks like in the 21st century. See, God is, God doesn't need our input when it comes to morality. God doesn't need our input when it comes to what's right and wrong. The next two texts Paul quotes at the end of chapter 3 in verse 19 and then again in verse 20. The first of which is from the book of Job. He traps the wise in their own cleverness so their cunning schemes are thwarted. And the second is Psalm 94, 11. God, the Lord knows people's thoughts. He knows they are worthless. See, when we were, if we were to objectively look at what's taking place at the church in Corinth, if we were just to look at the fruit of what's taking place in Corinth, what we would see is division and dissension. And the only thing that's created by the cleverness of the people in Corinth, the only thing that is, that is the fruit of the gospel that the people are actually living out, not the one they claim to believe, but the one that they're actually living out, the only thing that's created by that is a church marked by division. Like that's the evidence. 
If we want to know what gospel the people in Corinth are living out, all we have to do is look at them. All we have to do is observe their behavior. And then we'll know. Essentially, God is saying, you think you're so clever. Well, is this the kingdom? When we get to chapter 11, we're, we're going to talk about the way that the people who are, who are high society Corinth, the Christians who are high society Corinth, are coming to the gathering because they're off early because they didn't go to work that day because all of the other people who are the slaves in their culture and society are working for them. All the high society in Corinth shows up and all the food is laid out and the wine is set. And that's how they celebrate communion together. That's how they celebrate the Lord's Supper is they eat all the good food and drink all the good wine. And by the time the people who have been serving them all day show up, there's no food left. And God looks at that and says, is that the kingdom? That sounds more like Corinth than it does the Christian kingdom. This is what your cleverness gets you. And what Paul is doing here is he is, he is just carefully using scripture as a scalpel to reveal the depth of their hearts. And notice, like, there's not a lot of expository teaching and preaching in this. Like, he's just throwing a verse in there, and then he's kind of moving on to the next topic. Because what Paul is doing is he's counting on the word to do the work. One of my favorite verses is found in Hebrews chapter 4. And it says this, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. And see, if you've ever had a time where you've read Scripture, and I hope this, like, I hope this happens to you all the time. I'm just going to be honest with you. I hope it happens when there are times when you read Scripture and it speaks so clearly and succinctly to your heart that you just have to like lean back in your chair and push it away for a second and be like, whoa, this is, this is doing something to my heart. This is doing something to my soul because that's how Paul is using this text. Paul is using the text because he wants the scripture to be offensive, not his words. So this is a great example of what we talk about here often, that the scripture is both timely, speaks to a specific situation, but it's also timeless. Paul is using these Old Testament scriptures to reveal them the reality of their hearts. Let's look at verse 7. For what gives you the right to make such a judgment? And what do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? So what Paul here is saying is because you, because you don't understand the gospel, what you've done is you've, you've placed your hope and your trust and your confidence in the gift rather than the giver of the gift. You've made this reception of the gospel that you have about the person who spoke it rather than the God who gave him. 
And I think this is a challenge for us today. As we go into, we are in the Thanksgiving season. I know many of you, like as soon as, as soon as maybe you got home from Trunk or Treat on October 31st, you went home and set up your Christmas tree. Because you don't, you know, we don't have time as a culture to spend any time thinking about thankfulness. We have to go, like we just have to pretend like November doesn't exist. And this is a cultural thing. It's easy for us to make what God has done about the gift. And we want more of that gift. See, what Paul is saying is that leaders are gifts to the church. And they are gifts whom God is using to bring maturity to those in the church. And rather than recognizing them as gifts, what, what the body is doing is they're using the, the gifts against one another. He's pitting the leaders against one another, the speakers against one another. They're choosing the gift over the giver. And they're settling for the values of the world rather than embracing the values of the kingdom. I wonder how many times we settle for the values of the world where we think those values are good enough, where we find our satisfaction in the values of the world when God has so much more for us. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. You think you already have everything you need. You think you are already rich. I hope this is one of those times for us this morning where just the scalpel just does its work. I'm going to start over. You think you already have everything you need. You think you are already rich. You have begun to reign in God's kingdom without us. Are you starting to detect the sarcasm? I wish you really were reigning already, for then we would be reigning with you. Instead, I sometimes think God has put us apostles on display like prisoners of war at the end of a victor's parade, condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the entire world, to people and angels alike. See, what Paul is doing here is he's using this sarcasm so he can begin to contrast the wisdom of Corinth the wisdom of the world with the values and the wisdom of God. He's, he's, he's not, he's no longer taking three and a half chapters to get to where he wants to talk about it. He's no longer engaged in this buildup to confront their sinfulness. Now he's just going to say, the wisdom of the world is here. The wisdom of the kingdom is here. And I know you think you have it all because you have this. But the reality is, well, while you are living this life in your, in your mind because you think you have it all figured out. In essence, what Paul is saying is us apostles, we're struggling. In fact, we, we feel like... We feel like we're at the long of the end, the end of the long parade. I think we talked about this back in Romans when we talked about the triumph. When a, a great war or a great battle would be fought and the Roman army would come into Rome. 
the soldiers at the front and, and crowds lining the roads, cheering and applauding the victors. And before the general comes at the end of the parade, there's this group of people that are the prisoners of war. And those prisoners of war, they're either going to be executed or latter Roman Empire is going to have them in the Colosseum fighting to the death. And what Paul is saying is, while you guys are all receiving the adulation and celebrating together in your wisdom, in your arrogance, and in your pride, we're out here being executed. We're out here being murdered. And what's worse is you're pitting us, you are throwing us into the Colosseum together. And you are forcing us to defend ourselves from one another. Could you imagine that? See, the church in Corinth probably didn't think that's what was happening. We've talked about, like, they just thought they had their preferences. But the reality is they are pitting one another against one another. Verses 10 to 13. Our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools. But you claim to be so wise in Christ. This is more sarcasm. You are honored, but we are ridiculed. We are weak, we are weak, but you are so powerful. You are honored, but we are ridiculed. Even now, we go hungry and thirsty, and we don't have enough clothes to keep warm. We are often beaten and have no home. We work wearily with our own hands to earn our living. We bless those who curse us. We are patient with those who abuse us. We appeal gently when evil things are said about us. Yet we are treated like the world's garbage, like everybody's trash, right up to the present moment. So here's what Paul is saying. We suffer and we sacrifice and all you do is boast. All you do is look inwardly at yourselves and congratulate yourselves for being so wealthy, so powerful, so strong. And what Paul is doing here in a not so subtle way is he is reminding them that the values of, of, of success and failure, what that looks like in the world and what that looks like in God's kingdom could not be more opposite. They could not be more opposed. Because in our culture too, we would be tempted, we would be tempted to look at the fruit of Paul's labor and Apollos' labor and Timothy's labor, and we would see them struggling, and we would see them not succeeding. We would see them failing. But what Paul is doing here is he's flipping that world culture on its on its on its end. He's communicating to them that the church in Corinth, you actually have this wrong. And I know you think you don't, but you have this wrong. 
See, Paul is telling them that salvation comes from God, and it is not demonstrated but what, but what by the world considers to be success. So for us as Christians, we, when we think of words like success and failure, we might need to define our terms. Because success might not look like success. Failure might not look like failure. You know, as we, as we understand church history, within, with the exception of John, every disciple died a martyr's death. And we would be tempted to say, what a failure. Isn't that what the Roman Empire thought? I know what we'll do. We'll kill all these disciples. And that'll be the end of Christianity. Hey, Roman Empire, how's that working out for you? Like, one of those two things, Christianity and Roman Empire, is still going. And it ain't the Roman Empire. See, our ideas and our ideals of success and failure need to be recalibrated to God's. And this is why the measurement of success in God's kingdom is faithfulness. It's faithfulness. Are we being faithful? Doesn't matter how many people come to the Lord or don't come to the Lord. And we want people to come to the Lord. The measure is faithfulness. And this faithfulness is marked by humility and trustworthiness and confidence that God alone is the judge. And the church at Corinth is not demonstrating these traits. As much as they think they are, as much as they look at themselves as a success, they are a failure. They claim to be wise, powerful, and honored, but those are the values of the world. And what we see as we read through this text is we, we see what's happening in, what happened in the life of Christ, who's executed for our salvation. And what we see taking place in the lives of the disciples is true success, is true victory. And the people who are hearing this read over them are probably starting to have something happen in their hearts. In Acts chapter 2, for instance, when, when Peter gives his speech and, it, and he, he, gets, he gets to the end of his speech and the speech is essentially all of these Old Testament texts talked about the coming of the Messiah and he came, his name was Jesus, he did all of these things and your response to him was, you killed him. And the NIV says something to the effect of, and the people were cut to the heart. Like that's the scalpel of scripture. They're cut to the heart. They said, what must we do? My guess is, as we're reading through this, as the church in Corinth is hearing this spoken over them, they're probably cut to the heart. So Paul is going to address that. This is beginning at verse 14. I'm not writing these things to shame you, but to warn you as my beloved children. 
For even if you had 10,000 others to teach you about Christ, you have only one spiritual father. For I became your father in Christ Jesus when I preached the good news to you, so I urge you to imitate me. That's why I've sent Timothy, my beloved faithful and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you of how I follow Christ Jesus, just as I teach in all the churches wherever I go. Some of you have become arrogant, thinking I will not visit you again. But I will come, and soon, if the Lord lets me, and then I'll find out whether these arrogant people just give pretentious speeches or whether they really have God's power. For the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. It is living by God's power. Which do you choose? Should I come with a rod to punish you? Or should I come with love and a gentle spirit? What I love so much about this portion of the text is, is Paul completely understands how the church at Corinth is feeling right now. And he's going to address it. If I were writing this as a separate sermon, the title would be, Daddy's Coming Home. I wonder how many of you heard a version of that phrase when you were growing up. Wait till your father comes home. Anybody hear that one? I can only think of one time when I was a child where I heard that phrase. And that was basically because my mom was able to take care of her business when it came to us. But I remember one time we were living in, we were living in Philadelphia. I was born in Philadelphia, lived there until I was five years old. So I don't have a lot of memories of Philadelphia, but, but obviously this one stuck out to me. I think I said the F word in the kitchen. And my mom turned and looked at me and said, go upstairs, sit at the top of the stairs, and wait until your father gets home. And I think, like I said, my mom could usually take care of her business, but that one was like maybe too much for her. And I sat at the top of the stairs all day when my dad got home. He took care of business. But Paul is using this language of fatherhood because what he wants them to know is that he loves them. He wants to remind them that this is about relationship. As, as they have been laid open and exposed to the reality of their sinfulness, what Paul knows they need to hear right now is the heart of a loving father. He doesn't just want them to feel bad. He's warning them as a father who loves his children. Paul's not some cruel outsider casting stones from far away. Paul helped found the church. He was with them in the very beginning. He was concerned for them and he loves them. And like families, the church is a, is a group of people who are maturing and what they need is a, is a loving father to come alongside them and demonstrate and show them what maturity looks like, which is why he says, imitate me. Be like me. 
I gave you this long list of things that we are having to deal with as apostles because we, we want you to be like us. We don't want you to be wrapped up in your pride and your arrogance and your comfort. We want you to be like us. See, Paul isn't just giving them spiritual sounding advice. And I think oftentimes that's what we reduce the Bible to. I need some spiritual sounding advice, so so I'm going to look in the Proverbs. I'm going to look in Psalms. I'm going to find something that's that's going to help me to feel better. But Paul's not interested in that. Paul wants them to grow in key areas of their life that are going to result in a new lifestyle. Paul tells them the values of God's kingdom because he wants them to live in those values of the kingdom. He wants them to be different. He wants them to be new people. This lifestyle is rooted in who they are in Christ. And we know that Christ is found in the scriptures. We have access to the heart of God about the person of Jesus because we have access to the scriptures. And it's this that will give them what they need to be faithful to God. Pay attention to the scriptures. Look to the scriptures. See, the problem that they're facing, this sinfulness, isn't just a problem to address, but it's an opportunity for deep discipleship. This is one of the things that I've been learning over the last five months is as a person who has lots of problems that he's dealing with, we all have problems, we all have issues that take place in our lives. This isn't just something for us to overcome, but it's an opportunity for me, it's an opportunity for you to be made into a new person. It's an opportunity for discipleship. And what Paul is doing is he's telling them what discipleship looks like. What the Bible is doing is it's telling us what discipleship looks like, what it acts like. Our problems are not just things to overcome, but they're opportunities to grow in our discipleship. And we'll grow in our discipleship when we face our problems. When we don't try to dodge our problems, when we don't try to get around our problems, when we don't try to medicate our problems. But when we face them, and we call on God to help us be more like him. And as we read through 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 21, what we see to be like Jesus looks an awful lot like suffering. And what many of us do in our lives is we do everything we possibly can to avoid suffering. We do everything we possibly can to avoid hardship. And what Paul seems to be indicating in these verses is discipleship is forged in hardship. Discipleship happens because of hardship. And in order to help them with this, what Paul is going to do is he's sending Timothy to remind them of the way that Paul followed Christ. If we were to look back in Acts chapter 18 and see the the founding of the church 
there's kind of this implication that Timothy is with Paul. And I imagine because Timothy beat Paul to Corinth, so he beat this letter there. And whether it was a few days or weeks or, or maybe even a few months, I imagine those conversations between Timothy and the church at Corinth looked a lot like this. Do you remember how Paul was when he was here? Remember what Paul did? Well, Jesus did this, so Paul does that. Do you remember when Paul acted this way in the midst of this circumstance? Do you remember how much Paul loved you and demonstrated when he did this? I just imagine that as I was thinking about this text, I just imagine like how, how Timothy was just kind of, kind of like protecting Paul's character and Paul's reputation to just consistently remind the people in Corinth, this is who Paul was, this is who Paul was, this is who Paul was. He loved you. He was your spiritual father. Don't pit someone against him. You're the, you are the reason, he is the reason that you are Christians. He's the reason that you've heard the gospel. That guy that you think is a terrible speaker, you be, like it worked. You became a follower of Christ because of what he said. So he mustn't have been that bad. So Timothy is reminding the church at Corinth about this. I want you to notice what Paul does in verse 19. He says, but I will come in soon if the Lord lets me and I'll find out whether these arrogant people just give pretentious speeches or whether they really have God's power. Paul's putting his dad hat on. And what he's saying is this. When I get there, we're going to find out who the good speakers are. You put your best speaker up against the power of God. And let's see who's going to win. Let's see who's going to rise to the occasion in that. We'll see what happens when those two things collide. Dad's coming home. And the way he arrives is going to be solely dependent on what you do between now and then. He's either going to beat you with a stick, because, I mean, that's pretty much what it says. Or it's all going to be gumdrops and lollipops. This is a very, we talked about this earlier today. This is a very unsatisfactory way to stop talking about Corinth for two months. I feel the weight of that today. It's kind of like a cliffhanger. Paul says he's going to come with a stick or everything's going to be great. See you in two months. I don't like that. And I think what's taking place is for us, this is a gentle reminder that obedience to God, our response to the commands of God, our response has a consequence. Whether we go in line with what God is calling us to or whether we push back against what God is calling us to, there is a consequence for that choice. There's a consequence for that action. 
See, like the church in Corinth, we, we have been given and are being, giving, get being given a calling to live in a certain way. It's not something that God has just called us to at one point in history when we became followers of Christ. It's not some past event that we have been called to. It's not only a past event. It's an event right now that we are being called to. We are being called to active participation in the kingdom of God. To live as those, this identity were true. And the way that we live that out says more about our actual response to God than our words. And each one of us is, 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 has had a choice that's been set before us as we read through this text. And there are consequences for that choice. God gives us power. And it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. We can live out the way, live lives the way that God calls us to. And far too often, our ability is dependent on our desire. And my hope as we, as we press pause on 1 Corinthians for, for the next two months, my hope is that you will take time and, and read and reflect on this text and see what happens when a church chooses to be disobedient to God. My hope will be that you will take time to go back and read and reflect on this and observe what happens when a church chooses chooses to pick sides and work people against one another. Again, with the hopes that we, we don't become this church. I said it twice. I'm going to say it three times. We're not going over this because we think there's some big issue here. We're going over this because our culture has so set itself against itself that if we are not on guard, we will become like our culture. We will embrace the values of our culture. And as a church that has not only been called, but is being called to be set apart, we want to refute that. We want to push back against that. We want to go on the offensive against that culture. I didn't say we want to be offensive. We want to go on the offensive and push back against culture. And we might look like fools when we do it. And what Paul tells us in these verses is that's what victory looks like. Let's pray. Father, I come to you this morning thankful for your goodness and thankful for your faithfulness, thankful that your, the success or failure of your kingdom is not dependent on words that are stated from the front of this room. The success or failure of your kingdom has in fact already been decided by the person of Jesus. I pray that we would be filled with the desire to continue to live changed lives because of what he has done. 
I pray that we would examine ourselves, that we would examine our own motives. We would examine our words and our thoughts and our actions and choose to be faithful to your kingdom rather than the kingdom of this world. It's in your son's name. Amen.